How did you happen to get in here? I ran here. You scared the daylights out of me last night. Seems like the truth shouldn't scare anybody, man or boy. Hello everyone and welcome to When It Was Cool Dark. I'm your host, Carl Stern. Thank you very much for joining me. This podcast is produced and distributed by WhenItWasCool.com. Check us out. Check out our free shows, our free articles. And if you're interested in taking a deeper dive into any of the topics, you can become a Patreon supporter that actually supports this show and this website, plus gets you access to the entire back catalog of When It Was Cool, Dark, and 2,000-plus other podcasts available right now to our Patreon supporters. This is a series called 100 of the Darkest Moments in Pop Culture History. Uh, we are in the latter stages of that series now, where we've looked at uh, some troubling moments in pop culture history. We've talked about a lot of deaths and scandals and uh, legal troubles and things of that nature. Things that have put a a black eye, so to speak, on popular culture or uh, artists that were taken from us too soon or things that were just strange, bizarre, and unusual in pop culture. And today certainly falls under the category of strange, weird, and unusual We're going to talk about somebody who is uh, really influential in music, Graham Parsons. And uh, look, Graham Parsons' uh, career was very short. He was only 26 years old when he died. Uh, But if you're a a fan of, oh gosh, that, you know, that 1960s, 1970s music, uh, Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, things, uh, you know, even, I guess, influential toward the Eagles. Uh, he was a member of the Birds. Uh, very influential musician was Graham Parsons. He also died mysteriously, and uh, the follow-up to his death is really, really strange and really, really dark. So when you think about dark and you think about, you know, the shows we did, prior to our 100 Darkest Moments in Pop Culture History series, we did a lot of stuff about the strange, the unusual, the macabre. Our back catalog is filled with, you know, stories of ghosts and haunted houses and grave robbing and Frankenstein monsters and things like that. All all those very, you know, kind of disturbing stories. Well, here in this series, Graham Parsons going to bring a lot of that back home. So long-time listeners to this program, you're going to hear some familiar uh, themes in here. Very strange story. So first, let's establish who Graham Parsons was, for those of us who don't know that much about him. I mean, he's a little bit before my time. I was born in 1971, and he died September 19th of 1973 at the age of 26. But clearly, the music I grew up listening to, he was very uh, heavily influentially. And as I find out, learn later on, as I got more and more interested in music and learning about music and, and uh, becoming kind of a expert in, in uh, music pop culture, 
his name kept coming up again and again and again, but I really didn't know his story or uh, that much about him uh, beyond just his musical influence. So his name was Ingram Cecil Connor III, but he is known uh, professionally as Graham Parsons. He was born November 5th, 1946, and as I mentioned, died September 19th, 1973. He was a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and pianist who recorded as both a solo artist uh, with, along with his band, the International Submarine Band. He also recorded along with the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and popularized what is called Cosmic American Music, which is a hybrid of country, rhythm and blues, soul, folk, and rock. Again, uh, think about sort of like early Joe Walsh stuff, that, that type. Hey, I think he was very heavily influenced with the Flying Burrito Brothers as well. Parsons was born in Winter Haven, Florida, and developed an interest in country music while attending Harvard University, a strange place to pick up a, a uh, affinity for country music, I would say. It also implies he's a pretty intelligent guy, right, going to Harvard. He founded the International Submarine Band in 1966, but the group disbanded prior to 1968 release of its debut album, Safe at Home. Parsons joined the Birds in early 1968 and played a pivotal role in the making of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, a seminal album in country rock genre. After leaving the group in 1968, Bird, uh, a fellow Bird member Chris Hillman, along with Parsons, formed the Flying Burrito Brothers in 1969, and the band released its debut, The Gilded Palace of Sin, the same year. The album was well-received, but failed commercially. After a sloppy cross-country tour, the band hastily recorded Burrito Deluxe. Parsons was fired from the band before the album's release in early 1970. Parsons spent the first half of 1971 with Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, living in his French villa uh, during the recording sessions for Exile on Main Street, though he contributed very little to the recording process itself. After traveling around Britain with friends in late 1971, he was treated for heroin addiction and returned to the U.S., where he was introduced to Amy Lou Harris, who assisted him on vocals for his first solo record, GP, which was released in 1973. Although it received enthusiastic reviews, the release failed to chart. His health deteriorated due to several years of drug abuse, culminating in his death from a toxic combination of morphine and alcohol in 1973 at the age of 26. Uh, released after his death was a solo album titled Grievous Angel, which peaked at number 195 on the Billboard chart. Parsons' relatively short career was described by all music as enormously influential for country and rock, blending the two genres to the point that they became indistinguishable from each other. He has been credited with helping to found the country rock and alt-rock genres. His posthumous uh, honors include the American the Americana Music Association President's Award for uh, 2003 and ranking at number 87 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. So while, you know, commercially not that successful, he was tremendously influential. But it's his death and the bizarre aftermath thereof that lands him on the darkest 100 Darkest Moments in Pop Culture History list. Well, because, hey, there's an entire Wikipedia article dedicated to just the death of Graham Parsons. So, let's talk about it. 
He died September 19, 1973 in, a, in Room 8 of the Joshua Tree Inn near Joshua Tree National Park. Encouraged by his road manager, Phil Kaufman, Parsons again visited the park after completing his latest recording sessions. Earlier, he had confessed to Kaufman that he wished to be cremated and his ashes scattered in the park in case he died. Parsons traveled to Joshua Tree with Michael Martin, who was his assistant, Margaret Fisher, who was his high school girlfriend, and Dale McElroy, which was Martin's girlfriend. Parsons spent time in the desert during the day in local bars at night, consuming barbiturates and alcohol every day. On September 18th, after being injected with morphine, Parsons overdosed. On September the 19th, he was declared dead on arrival at the hospital. Following Graham Parsons' death, and in order to fulfill his desires, Kaufman and Martin arrived at the Los Angeles International Airport in Martin's personal Cadillac hearse, impersonating mortuary workers. Yes. Under the impression that the pair had been hired by the Parsons family, Western Airlines released the body to them. They then took it to Joshua Tree, set it on fire, the burning casket was reported by campers to the local authorities who investigated the incident and, and identified both perpetrators. Parsons' body was partially cremated. His charred remains were recovered and returned to his family. Meanwhile, Kaufman and Martin were accused of grand theft and fined for burning the casket. They also had to pay for Parsons' funeral. Parsons' remains were later buried in New Orleans, at Garden of Memories on Airline Highway. As I said, this story gets bizarre. During the 1960s, as a member of the Flying Burrito Brothers, Graham Parsons became fascinated by the Joshua Tree National Monument. The singer visited the park several times during the recording sessions he held in the summer of 1973, which were later released on the album Grievous Angels after his death in 1974. Parsons had reduced his use of heroin, but retook the habit as the recording finished. Incited by his road manager, Phil Kaufman, Parsons went on a trip to Joshua Tree in September. He was accompanied by the people we previously mentioned. Kaufman later decided that Parsons' attorney was preparing divorce papers for him to serve to Parsons' wife, Gretchen Burrell, while the singer was in Joshua Tree on September 20th. The travelers stayed at Joshua Tree Inn, room number 8, during the trip. Parsons often retreated to the desert, while at night the group would visit local bars, where he sat in with bands. Excepting McElroy, he and his companions consumed alcohol and barbiturates in high amounts. On September the 18th, Martin drove back to Los Angeles to resupply the group with marijuana. Parsons purchased liquid morphine that night from an unknown girl who injected him and Fisher. Parsons overdosed in room one. Fisher gave Parsons an ice cube suppository and later sat him in a cold shower. Instead of moving him around the room, she put him back in bed in room eight and went out to buy coffee and try to wake up Parsons, leaving McElroy to watch over him. As his respirations became irregular and then later ceased, McElroy attempted resuscitation. As she failed, Fisher tried again upon her return. After more failed attempts, they called an ambulance. Parsons was declared dead on his arrival at the High Desert Memorial Hospital 
uh, just after midnight on September 19, 1973, in Yucca Valley, California. Now, as alluded to earlier, we're going to steal the body of Graham Parsons. This <laughs> is just bizarre. It's certainly dark. Initially, the San Bernardino County coroner declared Parsons' death to be from, quote, natural causes pending an autopsy. An inconclusive autopsy was later performed. Fisher called Kaufman, who arrived at Joshua Tree on September 19th. Fisher had cleared room eight of all the drugs soon after Parsons' death, while Kaufman searched Parsons' car upon his arrival. Kaufman then drove Fisher and McElroy back to Los Angeles in Kaufman's Jaguar to evade the police in case they were looking for the two women. Kaufman then proceeded to make phone calls to the San Bernardino coroner's office and found out that the body was being moved to Los Angeles International Airport to be transferred to Western Airlines. He then called the company and was told the body was to be shipped to New Orleans for the funeral. The embalmed body of Parsons was reported as stolen on September 20th. Kaufman and Martin, who had arrived at Los Angeles International Airport in McElroy's 1953 Cadillac hearse and impersonated workers of a funeral parlor, claiming that Parsons' family had arranged for them to take the body to New Orleans by way of a chartered flight departing from Van Nuys Airport. The cargo manager could not find the transfer request among his papers, but assumed it was a last-minute change and decided to release the body to the two men. Kaufman signed the papers as, quote, Jeremy Nobody, and proceeded a, uh, to request a patrolman who parked behind the hearse to move his car away so they could load the casket. The patrolman helped Kaufman and Martin, who were struggling to move the coffin. As a result of his nervousness in the presence of the patrolman and his previous consumption of alcohol, Martin drove the car into a wall of the hangar in front of the officer. The patrolman evidently did not suspect them of any illegal activity, and the two left with Parsons' body. This sounds like a bad movie script. Earlier that year, Kaufman and Parsons had attended Clarence White's funeral after singing an impromptu rendition of the song Farther Along. While the casket was lowered, Parsons told Kaufman, Don't let this happen to me, and explained to him his desire to be cremated and his ashes scattered in Joshua Tree. When they arrived at Joshua Tree, Kaufman opened the casket and poured in five gallons of gasoline to set the body on fire and left. On their way back to Los Angeles, the two stopped to sleep off their drunkenness. When they woke up, the hearse did not start, and Kaufman had to hike to reach a mechanical shop. The hearse started again after a few repairs, and the two returned to the road, where they were later involved in a car pileup on the highway and rear-ended another car. A police officer handcuffed them both when several beer cans fell from the vehicle as one of the doors opened. While the officer went to assure that no other drivers were hurt in the accident, Martin slipped his hand out of the cuffs and fled with Kaufman. Since the officer did not take the driver's license of either one or even the license plate number, he could not identify with them. They have been drunk, using drugs, taken a hearse that apparently they legally owned, stole the body of Graham Parsons, took it to the desert, poured on five gallons of gasoline, which is extraordinarily dangerous, set it on fire, got into a crash, 
after sleeping in a hotel room, got handcuffed by police, yet escaped. This story is bizarre. Following the body theft being reported, the casket was sighted burning by campers who alerted park authorities. A green Western Airlines body bag was found beside the casket. The body was not thoroughly cremated as 35 pounds of Graham Parsons remained. Witnesses reported seeing a hearse speeding away from the scene, recalling that other vehicles had been forced off the road. After mug shots of the believed perpetrators were shown to witnesses from the airport, investigator Joe E. Hamilton, we presume not Joe the assassin Hamilton from professional wrestling fame, or maybe it was in this story, who can know, declared that the police were close to identification. Kaufman and Martin were identified from the mugshots, arrested, and charged with grand theft. While the two awaited judgment, the San Bernardino County Coroner declared to the press that Parsons' death was caused by, quote, multiple drug abuse, in part due to overdose of whiskey, barbiturates, and cocaine. Kaufman and Martin were given 30-day suspended jail sentences and fined $300 each for misdemeanor theft. They were charged $708 for funeral home expenses. Kaufman threw a benefit party to raise funds to pay the fines. The event was called Kaufman's Coffin Caper Concert. I'm not even making any of this up. Ridiculous. Dr. Demento, as recently featured in the Weird Al movie on Hulu, that Dr. Demento, was featured the featured disc jockey and beer bottles with the figure of Parsons on the label and the inscription, Graham Pilsner, a stiff drink for what ails you, was served. What What a strange, strange, bizarre story. A small family service was organized for the burial of the 35 remaining pounds of Graham Parson in New Orleans. Shocked by the theft, failed cremation, and the fundraiser, the family regarded it all as a Kaufman publicity stunt and denied there could have been any promise between Parsons and his manager. He was buried at Memorial Lawn Cemetery with the epitaph, quote, God's own singer. Kaufman wrote about his experience stealing the body of Parsons in his autobiography, Road Manager Deluxe. The events were loosely depicted in the 2003 film, Grand Theft Parsons, starring Johnny Knoxville. Joshua Tree National Park does not officially recognize Parsons' link to the park, and his memorial does not appear on the maps. Rangers are given the option to tell the story, but it does not appear on brochures either. While Parsons was incinerated a quarter mile away from Cap Rock, the location is often confused with the actual place where it happened. Makeshift memorials and inscriptions are found around the rock and cleared by park caretakers. Tourists and fans of Parsons visit the site as well as Joshua Tree Inn, where a guitar-shaped statue dedicated to Parsons can be found outside. Room 8 is reserved by the current owner for people who ask specifically to stay there for its relation to Parsons and is not offered to walk-in guests. The only remaining furniture from the time is a mirror found near the bed. Parsons' former Burritos bandmate, Bernie Linden, of course later also in the Eagles, 
objected to the disrespectful way Kaufman cremated him in Joshua Tree, describing it as, quote, a partial unattended burning and not a proper cremation, which I think we can all agree. Good grief. What a strange, strange, strange story. When we come back after our break, and Lord, do we need a break now, we're going to visit Rolling Stone magazine. What in the world could Rolling Stone possibly have to say? Well, Graham Parsons, The Mysterious Death and Aftermath, from October 25th, 1973, an article by Patrick Sullivan, the singer-songwriter-guitarist dies suddenly from unknown causes. Well, we know what the causes are now, but we'll read what they had to say at the time right after the 370 end. In a joint paper by physicists Silas Arbeen from the University of Bonn and Zara Devoudi and Martin J. Savage from the University of Washington, Seattle. Under the assumption of finite computational resources, the simulation of the universe would be performed by dividing the continuum space-time into a discrete set of points, which may result in observable effects. In analogy with the many simulations that lattice-gauge theorists run today to build up nuclei from the underlying theory of strong interactions, known as quantum chromodynamics. Several observational consequences of a grid-like space-time have been studied in their work. Among proposed signatures is an anisotropy in the distribution of ultra-high-energy cosmic rays that, if observed, would be consistent with the simulation hypothesis according to these physicists. 371 Dark We have over 2,000 podcasts in our archive on Patreon at whenitwascool.com. We need your support to keep these shows going. We are in the 100 Darkest Moments in Pop Culture History series. We're late in the series now. and We will be uh, changing up the show once we complete this series. But right now we continue with the extremely bizarre and I think we can all agree, quite dark story of Graham Parsons. And uh, we go to the October 25th, 1973 article from Rolling Stone magazine, Graham Parsons, The Mysterious Death and Aftermath. We uh, know more details now, but at the time, uh, this was uh, reported as unknown causes, uh, as as unknown uh, reason for his death. We now know it was a combination of uh, barbiturates and, and morphine and things of that nature. Uh, not yet is the entire story of the stealing of the body and uh, all that stuff. Uh, again, it's documented at Rolling Stone if you want to read exactly how that was reported at the time. Uh, to get some more of the, the details of the aftermath... We're going to go to loudersound.com. Johnny Black, in September of 2022, so an article from not that long ago, wrote about the death of Graham Parson, a story of drugs, theft, and a burning corpse. The strange and true story of the death of Graham Parson, told by the people who were there. And uh, this article, uh, again, uh, the classic rock writer, Johnny Black. Late in the evening of September 20th, 1973, two drunken men wearing rhinestone jackets and cowboy hats drove a hearse into Los Angeles Airport. Well, as we'd find out, literally into the wall there. Um, 
<laughs> the the article. I mean, you can't. This is so dark. It's it's beyond beyond all explanation here. They stole the corpse of country rock pioneer Graham Parsons in the hours that followed one of the most bizarre adventures in music history unfolded. Parsons had found success as the man who steered the birds into country rock in 1968. He then took the new genre further with the Flying Burrito Brothers and, through his friendship with Keith Richards, significantly influenced the Stones' classic 1972 album, Exile on Main Street. Hugely gifted as a songwriter and singer, he was also a tortured soul whose relationship with his wealthy family caused him no end of grief. By 1973, heroin heroin addiction and serious alcohol problems had reduced him to a low ebb. His marriage was in tatters, and death seemed to be frequently on his mind. In one of the last interviews, he declared, Death is a warm cloak, an old friend. Within weeks, he was dead. That was just the start of the story. Phil Kaufman, Parsons' road manager, says just a couple of months before he died, Graham and I went to the funeral of the Birds guitarist Clarence White. We had had a few sherberts before we went, and we were all saying that if Clarence had his choice, he wouldn't have chosen that kind of high-mass Catholic funeral with all that mumbo-jumbo. So Graham said, you know, this is explicitive. If I die, I want somebody to have a few beers, take me out to the desert, and burn my body. I said, all right, it's a deal, but would you do the same for me? And he said, yeah. Several months later, when we had finished the new album, Grievous Angel, he went out to Joshua Tree Desert to celebrate and kick back while I was in L.A. putting his next tour together. Graham often used to go to Joshua Tree. He just loved that area. He'd spent some time there with the Stones, and we had also done some filming there. So he booked a couple of rooms in the Joshua Tree Inn with Parsons' associate, Michael Martin, and his girlfriend, Dale McElroy. She was a well-traveled woman who, at the time, had unlimited funds because she had inherited uh, Caterpillar stock, which gave her good, guaranteed income. Dale McElroy said, Graham drove down in his jag with his ex-girlfriend, Margaret Fisher, and we met him at the hotel. Phil Kaufman states, As Graham's road manager, spent a lot of time finding his drug stashes and getting rid of them, but he could always get more. In Joshua Tree, he ran into singer Scott McKenzie's ex-wife, who could supply him, and he spent the day drinking and doing drugs. Margaret was on the same drugs as Graham, and they were pretty far gone by that evening. Uh, on over in these uh, various quotes and conversations, Del McElroy says, Margaret quickly took down his pants and pushed two or three ice cubes up his rear, talking about when they're trying to, to uh, revive him. To my astonishment, in a matter of seconds, he had regained consciousness and made some joke about what we were doing with his pants down. He had gotten up and was walking around the room. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Um... Then some of the others are discussing having gone back to Los Angeles to get more drugs, and the scene uh, just continues to be just as crazy and unhinged as it as it ever was. Del McElroy continues to say, after an hour or more, Margaret came back to my room and told me she wanted uh, to go out and get some food for Graham. The last thing she said was to keep an eye on Graham. I took a book into the room, and I found Graham passed out on the bed. 
After about 20 minutes, his breathing started to change. It became very labored, and I became scared. I wondered what to do. Should I get some help or just stay with him and give him artificial respiration? Uh, I mean, you could tell this is just a, a chaotic scene filled with people who are very much, uh, some of them are, are hammered as well. And just making extremely ridiculously poor decisions. Phil Kaufman, who seems to have the most to say about this whole deal, his manager says, when Dale called and told me Graham was dead, I said, no, no. But Dale said, Graham is dead and they're taking his body away. I said, okay, I'll be right there. It's about a three hour drive to get up there from Los Angeles. Uh, Kathy Miles, my girlfriend at the time, had a VW bus. We got to the motel early in the morning, and I cleaned the room out. Then, at the hospital, I was told the police wanted to interview the girls again. So I told them who I was and said I would bring the girls in. I got everybody into the car and took them back to Los Angeles, out of the local police jurisdiction, so the girls wouldn't have to be interviewed. I stayed home at my house on Chandler in Los Angeles for a couple days, but I knew what I had to do. I had to fulfill my promise to Graham. I called the mortuary in Joshua Tree to find out where Graham's body was. They told me he was en route to Continental Airlines at LAX, from where he'd be shipped back to his stepfather in New Orleans. As it happened, Dale owned a big Cadillac hearse, so I told her I wanted it, and I needed Michael to help me. So Michael and I set off in the hearse, wearing our Sin City jackets and cowboy hats. Our whole team was me and Michael, assisted by Jose, Jack, Jim, and Mickey. That being, of course, Jose Cuervo Tequila, Jack Daniels Whiskey, Jim Bean Bourbon, and uh, Mickey Big Mouth Beer. We were pretty well old. They had a holding area in the hangar at the airport where they'd take the caskets for onward shipment, and we got there about 10 o'clock on Thursday night. At first, uh, the people at the airport were suspicious. Uh, they were looking at the way we were dressed, so I said we were doing some overtime and basically hustled him into hurrying up. As I'm signing the papers using the name Jeremy Nobody, a police car pulls up and blocks the exit. Cop gets out, and he's just standing around, so I yelled at him, Hey, give us a hand with this stiff, will you? And he goes, Uh, okay. And the cop helped us load the body into the hearse. Michael got behind the wheel, and as we drove out, he hit the hangar door. There's enough space for a plane uh, to taxi through, and he somehow managed to hit the door. Cop looked at us, and I'm thinking, Boy, we're in trouble now. But he moved his car, and off he went. We stopped at a gas station, bought five gallons of gasoline, then off we went in our drunken stupor with Graham in the back and drove out beyond the Joshua Tree Inn. By now it's like 1 a.m. up into the National Park until we reached Cap Rock, which was about as far as we could go in our state of, of sobriety. We uh, opened up the back of the hearse, but the uh, casket dropped as Michael was pulling it out. Michael was really edgy, but I decided we had to say goodbye to Graham, so I opened up the casket, and the hinges obviously hadn't been oiled, so it creaked really loud. And then there he was, laying naked, with surgical tape covering where they'd done the autopsy. We used to do this thing, you know, where you're when you're a kid, you'd point at someone's chest, they'd look down, and you'd go zip up their nose. Well, that's the last thing I did to Graham. Michael was going, don't touch him, man. But you know he was dead, right? So I poured the gasoline all over him and said, All right, Graham, on your way. 
I struck the match and threw it into the gasoline. And when you do that, it consumes an enormous amount of oxygen and makes a big whoop. As we were watching, the body actually bubbled. Then we saw his ashes flying up into the night. Then we saw some headlights approaching from across the desert. We thought it might be park rangers, so we beat it out of there. All the way back to Los Angeles, there was a lot of traffic. There had been some sort of accident. We rear-ended a car on the freeway. A cop leaned over and looked in the hearse just as Michael opened his door and all these bottles fell out. cop says, you two stay here. He handcuffed us together, and we went off back to his car. Well, Michael was a skinny little guy, so he just slipped his hand out of the cuffs, and we took off down the nearest ramp. And we got back to my house, and I got somebody to get the handcuffs off of us. Just a bizarre, surreal, super strange, ridiculous, ridiculous story. Kaufman concludes several days later, Graham's death hit the headlines in the local papers. Rock star's body burned in bizarre desert ritual. Everybody in Los Angeles knew I did it, so it didn't take long for the cops to figure it out. The cops came to my house, questioned me. Do you have, did you have necrophiliac sex with, the, with him? All that sort of stuff. As it happened, Arthur Penn and Gene Hackman were shooting some scenes for a film called Night Moves at my house. As I'm being taken to the cop car, Hackman and Penn are standing watching, and they ask what was going on. Well, it was explained. Arthur Penn said, Gene, we're shooting the wrong movie here. Later, when I was driven home, they stopped filming, and everybody gave me a round of applause. Eventually, we went to court, and all they could charge us with was stealing the casket. The body itself had no intrinsic value, so unless someone filed a complaint, there was no law broken. They fined us $1,300, and Graham's stepfather had bought the cheapest casket he could, and Dale paid the fine. Graham Parsons' remains were shipped by his stepfather to New Orleans for burial at the Garden of Memories. In Kaufman's words, dying was a great career move for Graham. He is now acknowledged as one of the most influential country rock performers of all time. Roommate at Joshua Tree is now a shrine dedicated to Parsons' memory, but it remains available for rent. Phil Kaufman continues to work as a respected road manager and is currently in the employ of Nancy Griffith. His autobiography... Road Mangler Deluxe was published in 1993, and the film Grand Theft Parsons is a fictionalized account of Parsons' death, starring Johnny Knoxville and Christina Applegate, and it was released in 2003. And wow, what a ridiculous yet dark story, certainly worthy of inclusion in 100 of the darkest moments in pop culture history. So thank you very much for joining me. Hope you will support us at whenitwascool.com. If you like deep dives into popular culture like this, boy, have we got you covered. Check us out. Patreon supporters get instant access to over 2,000 podcasts dealing with retro pop culture and more. Check us out, whenitwascool.com, and I'll see you here again soon with another. Excuse me, please. Let's don't talk negatively. Speaking of winners, surprise, surprise, whenitwascool.com is your home for retro pop culture articles and podcasts. To all our patron supporters, this is for you, Fannie Mae. Solid gold just like you and me. Family friendly and fun, whenitwascool.com.